It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. Okay, once again, we are joined with our legal correspondent. We're going to be talking about the recent huge eruption of not only protests, but also just the open question of what's going to happen in the Supreme Court. On Monday evening, Politico basically dropped the bombshell that they had leaked something from the Supreme Court that said they were getting ready to roll back Roe versus Wade. There's a whole bunch of legal questions that are tied up into this. That's why we're going to be sort of taking first um like a legal look at this and just talk about how this could possibly play out what it would look like what it would mean for certain states to criminalize uh abortion access and reproductive freedom and how that will possibly impact the terrain that we're going to see so this is an internal draft majority opinion what does that mean exactly it's confusing, and the, the language around the headlines on this is, I think, also confusing for people. Um, the Supreme Court doesn't vote in the same way that, like, Congress votes. Um, so when they talk about, you know, the Supreme Court has voted, um, this isn't like a final binding vote. Uh, the way that they do do this is that, you know, they review all the written briefings in the case and then they have oral arguments on the case and then they do sort of a initial test vote to see which way the nine justices are going on the case and from there you know they will start writing opinions um in this case it appears that in that initial vote which happened Sometime after the case was argued in oral argument last fall, they reached a initial majority opinion that said that Roe versus Wade should be overturned. And so the process is that, you know, they write a majority opinion and, you know, other justices might write dissenting opinions or concurring opinions. And then they pass those different opinions around and they you know, revise their opinions, they attack the other opinions, um, and then there's, you know, subsequent votes that happen. Um, sometimes justices will change sides uh, if they're persuaded by somebody else's argument. Um, sometimes opinions will, you know, sort of narrow their ruling. Uh, so, you know, in, in, in general and in theory, a lot can happen. Um, what Politico said that is, you know, somewhat interesting is that they had information that, you know, this opinion 
which was written in February, uh, they had information that as of the time they were publishing it yesterday, um, on Monday, that this was still how the votes were breaking down within the Supreme Court. So even though it's, you know, if, um, an opinion that was circulated three months ago, that this was still um, what, you know, five of the justices at the Supreme Court were planning on doing. Um, the, the problem is that it, it's not, yeah, it's not final. Um, and it's not an indication of what the law is now. Uh, until the Supreme Court has actually issued an opinion, um, nothing, nothing is final and nothing has the force of law. And so it kind of, it kind of creates this sort of in between space where it's like, it seems like this is what they're doing. But they haven't actually done it yet. And so it creates both like alarm, but also hesitation. Um, and I think that's been confusing for a lot of people that like, has the Supreme Court done this or haven't they? Are they going to or aren't they? And, and so there's still these, these open questions that, that people are struggling with. Let's talk about the leak itself. Do we know how this opinion got leaked? Is there a significance to it being leaked? There's a lot of speculation about that, and we don't know at this time how it got leaked. I think a lot of people were initially, well, to back up, Supreme Court deliberations are notoriously secret. Uh, that, you know, they have a, a public oral argument, and the, the briefings um, that get filed are all public, but the actual deliberations of the court are, are notoriously extremely secret. Um, and this is more by sort of internal custom and rule than, than anything that's like set in law or stone or anything. Um, but everything that I've read says that it's pretty much unprecedented in the modern history of the court for a draft opinion to get leaked publicly. Um, and I think a lot of people, their sort of first reaction was like, surely this got leaked by somebody that, you know, supports abortion rights and was outraged by this opinion and thought people needed to know. And maybe, you know, there needs to be pressure put on the court and like, you know, somebody that sort of wanted to whistleblow and like stop this from happening or sort of a last ditch effort to stop this from happening. Uh, but I've also, there's been a lot of um, sort of analysis that suggests that it might actually be more likely to have come from uh, somebody against abortion rights, somebody on the political right of the court. And a couple, a couple reasons for that. One, um, it could be a way to, uh, blunt the impact of the actual opinion that if you're going to roll back uh, 50 years of reproductive freedom, uh, it might be better to not do that all in one fell swoop. And so by leaking it, you sort of create the situation where there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty for people. Get some of the outrage out now 
while it's not quite real yet. And then when the actual opinion comes out, maybe it doesn't have uh, the same kind of splash that it did. Uh, maybe the protests aren't as lively or militant. Uh, maybe it's, you know, not as disruptive. Uh, also, I think the way it's leaked right now, you know, half of the articles and, you know, the second thing in our interview here is, is about this leak and about the process and the decorum and the custom of the Supreme Court rather than about the, you know, actual substance of what the court is doing to restrict bodily autonomy. And so it kind of diverts half of the discourse away from the actual issue. Um, it's also been suggested that if, um, you know, if there's justices that are looking to maybe scale back this opinion or, or hedge their bets and, and create something that's a little bit more narrow, um, that this could create pressure on the right and sort of pressure them into sticking with a decision that fully overturns Roe versus Wade. Uh, because the, the case that this is coming out of is a, is a law out of Mississippi that only restricts abortion after, I believe, 15 weeks. And so it's possible, you know, again, in theory, it's possible that the court could write an opinion that says, you know, this 15 week abortion ban is legal and we're not going to, you know, address the, the, you know, core of Roe versus Wade right now. We'll save that for a different day. Um, and so in a way, it, you know, if somebody on the right were to leak this, um, it could sort of, sort of trap the justices into their initial vote, uh, to make them look like they're not bowing to pressure by, you know, changing their their decision or their vote. Um, I know that there was recently uh, a suggestion that uh, Chief Justice Roberts was trying to, you know, pull the right wing of the court a little bit more to the center and to try and write something that was more narrow. And so this could have been a, you know, a move against you know, sort of a counter-maneuver against that to try and uh, pull it back to the right. So I think it's interesting. It's, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, people on both both sides of, of the aisle in mainstream politics are like, you know, sort of the classic, like, we need to, like, look into where this leak came from. We need an investigation. Uh, rather than focusing on on the substance of you know reproductive freedom, bodily autonomy, uh, things of that nature. Yeah, to your point, there's an article that just came out in the Washington Post today that said leading anti-abortion groups have been meeting with Republicans in Congress, and their plan is to uh, push for I think it's like a six-week abortion ban if the Supreme Court stays with this decision to throw out Roe versus Wade. Right. I mean, Texas has been under an effective six-week abortion ban since uh, September. And so, I mean, some parts of the country are already sort of living under this post-Roe versus Wade universe. Um, you know, other places 
you know, maybe there's a legal right to abortion still, but there's not actually um, any feasible access because of how far the nearest clinic is or, you know, various other barriers. So, you know, we know that Roe versus Wade has never been, you know, everything that the sort of white middle class feminists have have made it out to be that there's been major barriers to access for, you know, as long as this decision has been in place. Um, But we also know that things can always get worse and the things that are bad can get even more bad. Do we have any idea like how and when this would be implemented, what the next steps would be? Is there a timeline for this that the Supreme court will make a, more public decision? Yes, a little bit. I, I mean, I think anybody that was, you know, following this and follows the Supreme Court generally was expecting the court to issue their final decision on this case, um, probably in late June. Um, the Supreme Court has a uh, kind of weird calendar, um, and they, start their term in October and it ends at the end of June, uh, maybe the very beginning of July in some situations. And so in big landmark cases like this, um, the, the decision that they release usually tends to be at the very end of the term. And so people were expecting the final decision to be, um, you know, sometime between the second half of June and the first week or two of July. And so I think that's probably when we can still expect the Supreme Court to issue their final decision. Um, I don't think that, you know, some people have suggested that, you know, the Supreme Court should issue a final ruling immediately because of the confusion that this has created. And I don't really see the Supreme court doing that. Yeah. I just don't think that's very likely. Um, and so, yeah, I think they'll stick with whatever their general schedule and general pace of doing things is. So I think we can expect a final decision on this, um, in the next month and a half to two months at the latest. And then, you know, from there, you know, once Roe versus Wade gets repealed, um, there's some things that happen immediately and some things that happen more slowly. Uh, I think there's 12 or 13 states that have uh, what they call trigger laws. These are laws that have been passed that say this law only goes into effect if and when Roe versus Wade gets overturned. And obviously these are laws that basically prohibit abortion in any circumstance. And so depending on the exact wording of the laws, but I mean, basically these trigger laws would go into effect in 12 or 13 states immediately. Um, and so that's 12 or 13 states that the day after, maybe the day of a final decision that overturns Roe v. Wade would permit, would completely prohibit abortion in that state. Um, other states, um, you know, they'd have to go through whatever their legislative process is. Um, perhaps 
you know, perhaps the governor could issue some executive order. But for the most part, you know, they would have to pass a law through their Congress. And then the governor signs it um, or they would have to do something through, a, you know, a ballot initiative. It's possible that, you know, local municipalities could do something something themselves like a city that says we're banning abortion you know within our city limits to you know restrict the ability of of clinics to operate there so you know the timeline for that really varies uh state to state according to their own you know legislative process and and the political will to do something there. I mean, several states would certainly, you know, have very immediate, very immediate consequences. What penalties and legal hurdles would people face who would attempt to induce or carry out an abortion under this new regime? And of course, that would matter for what state they were at, because different states are going to have different laws. But if you can just kind of begin to answer that. Yeah, I mean, the anti-abortion movement, you know, the Christian fundamentalists, the, you know, forced birth people, uh, however you want to characterize them, have been pretty explicit about what this looks like when they get their way. Um, their slogan has always been that abortion is murder. And a lot of these statutes that, you know, these trigger laws, the laws that these states want to enact would make conducting an abortion murder. The same as if you walked out on the street and shot a dude in the face with a gun. And so that means that people that are, you know, seeking abortions, carrying out abortions, teaching people how to do abortions can very likely expect to be subjected to murder investigations and prosecutions the same way as if they were, you know, running an organized crime hit hit squad or something. Um, and so the, the severity of this really, I don't think can be overstated. Um, the, the political right, you know, the, the fundamentalists, you know, I told somebody the other day that it, you know, they're going to investigate this like they investigate, you know, Al Qaeda and ISIS and the Unabomber and a serial killer sort of all rolled into one. And, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty terrifying. Um, that, you know, life in prison, decades in prison, possibly even capital punishment, um, in some states if they went that far. I think there's been a bit of a shift in how the right likes to talk about it in, re in you know, past couple of decades that, you know, they don't, they don't like to talk about punishing the people that actually receive the abortion, the pregnant person that decides to terminate the pregnancy. Uh, they talk about it more in terms of punishing uh, the providers, but what we see is that, you know, more and more, um, the pregnant person is the provider. People are self-obtaining and self-managing their own abortions through, you know, 
longstanding herbal remedies, abortion medication that they obtain um, through various sources, you know, things of that nature. Um, People have been getting abortions for, you know, time immemorial. This isn't like a new practice uh, for people who get pregnant. This is something that goes back many generations and, you know, different cultures have different, you know, traditions and practices around this. And so, but I I think, you know, just, just about a month ago or a few weeks ago, um, there was a woman in South Texas who was arrested and indicted for, uh, for murder because she was alleged to have conducted a self-managed abortion on herself. And there was a pretty big public outcry and the charges got dismissed and the prosecutor put out a statement that there was no legal basis to charge her in the first place. But, but I mean, this shows that, you know, even when there's not a law in place that makes it illegal, they're still trying to, criminalize and punish women and other people who get abortions and who receive abortion care. And so I do think that there is uh, a, a particularly significant risk to people that are, you know, organizing to provide abortions, you know, underground abortion networks. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about like the, the Jane organization uh, from back in the, late 60s, early 70s that provided underground abortions before the Roe versus Wade decision. Um, but I think it's it's important to realize, you know, to, to not buy into the right wing rhetoric that they're only going after providers because they're absolutely going after uh, women and other pregnant people as well. And, you know, we know that when when the state focuses its its criminal enforcement power it, it's always it's always racialized. It's always based on class. It's always you know around immigration status and around other signifiers of marginalization. And so we know you know exactly which communities are going to be most heavily targeted, the most heavily policed. It's one more one more facet of you know our our white supremacist classist system of policing in this country. So in theory, people like giving out zines about herbal abortions or people uh, with access to like, you know, the, the morning after pill, making those available. Or even there's like the, there's an anarchist group that makes like DIY uh, medicines. Like they just put out like make your own herbal abortions, basically. Even that stuff could theoretically be criminalized, correct? Yeah, I think... You know, the exact lines of it are unclear. Um, you know, at what point does sharing information go from, you know, a free speech thing to a uh, conspiracy to commit a crime or solicitation to commit a crime or something like that? You know, again, sort of analogizing it to, you know, what we generally think of as murder. Like, at what point does, like, telling somebody how to kill somebody go from like sort of a, a, a non-specific uh, you know free speech sharing information and when does it become 
like a solicitation to commit murder or aiding and abetting the commission of murder. And so, you know, these are lines that we don't know where exactly they will get drawn in the future. But there's definitely, you know, the risk is the risk is bountiful. Would a person still be able to travel to another state to get an abortion or would that be illegal as well? Or that would, of course, matter from what state they were leaving from. I think this is a really interesting, interesting issue. Um, in, in the world before Roe versus Wade, you know, traveling out of state was maybe not quite as simple uh, for most people, unless you lived in the Northeast where states are tiny and close together. Um, quick and affordable air travel, um, you know, wasn't, wasn't what it is today. Um, and so I think, I think this is an interesting, an interesting question and an interesting area to, to sort of watch how it develops. I think it depends first on, you know, where are they traveling from? Um, if let's say, you know, this case came out of Mississippi and, you know, Mississippi's, a pretty conservative state and has a trigger law that will make abortion illegal immediately. Um, Mississippi could say that, you know, the same as if you traveled out of state to murder somebody, um, they could investigate you in Mississippi for, you know, let's say you planned with two of your friends to leave the state for the abortion that could be a conspiracy that took place in Mississippi that gives Mississippi jurisdiction to to investigate and arrest and prosecute that case. I think that I think the the question is, you know, to what extent can that investigation go beyond the state of Mississippi? Um, Connecticut recently passed a law that trying to sort of make their state a a um, uh, a new haven for abortion access, pun intended there, um, by prohibiting their law enforcement and their legal process from being used by states that are trying to investigate and prosecute people for seeking abortions. And so saying that they won't extradite people to a state um, based on an abortion investigation or won't let their law enforcement cooperate in an abortion investigation. And so does that prohibit or somehow interfere with Mississippi conducting their investigation and getting the evidence that they would need to prosecute that? Maybe, maybe not. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that um, go into an investigation. If they can't prove that, you know, they were traveling out of state for this abortion, then, you know, maybe they can't prove their, you know, conspiracy that originated in Mississippi. You also think about, you know, a lot of this relies on, you know, subpoenas and warrants to tech companies to get, you know, communications and travel information and credit card information, stuff like that. And so, so to what extent will, you know, various tech companies or various corporations uh, resist compliance with 
legal process that's seeking to criminalize and investigate uh, abortion matters. Right now, there's not really any federal laws about abortion one way or another. Uh, there's been a lot of talk recently amongst uh, Democrats, especially the more sort of liberal and progressive side of the Democrats, saying that uh, Congress needs to pass a law that basically uh, creates a statute in in place of the Roe versus Wade decision, basically a federal law that says states are not allowed to restrict abortion rights. I don't know if that will come to pass. I think it depends partly on you know what happens in the midterm elections in November. On the other hand, if if or maybe when uh, Republicans take control of the presidency in both houses of Congress again, like they did uh, the for, for the first two years under Trump, um, you can very, very easily expect them to pass a national law that says that in all states, even you know California, New York, and Connecticut, uh, abortion is illegal after six weeks of pregnancy, or you know maybe is illegal always and forever, no matter what. So there's, there's risk here even for, for people in, you know, ostensibly blue pro-choice liberal states. I mean, I think it should be clear to people at this point that we, we don't live in a, like, real serious democracy and, and we can't count on, you know, any one political party retaining power uh, indefinitely. And so I think, you know, there could come a time when some of these so-called, you know, sanctuary states for abortion, uh, are not, not as protective as they, they might, uh, might want to be, uh, depending on how, how federal legislation gets, uh, gets enacted. I think this kind of brings up this really big question. We were talking about this before we started recording, but so, for instance, what will the implications be for states that are trying to protect abortion access? So, for instance, like California, uh, they're talking about potentially like enshrining it in law, like other other people have proposed. And other states, I'm sure, will say like, hey, if you want to get an abortion, you're more than welcome to come to our state. You know, that sort of remains to be seen, but that is possible. So then what happens when you have a state that is saying like, you know, we defend, you know, a person's right to choose. And then you have other states that are saying like, no, if you do that, if you go to that state, you're breaking the law and we will arrest you for murder. Um, and one of the reasons that this is so important is this is sort of a very similar situation as to what happened in the lead up to the Civil War, where you had basically free states and slave states and you had people going out and trying to capture folks and bring them back to other places. And you had states essentially coming into conflict with each other over those laws. It, it's like you said, it's very much has similarities to the, the 1850s in the lead up to the Civil War, where you have anti-slave states in the North that are being expected to enforce the slave laws and the slave regimes of the slave states in the South uh, by, you know, returning fugitive slaves to the South. And 
you know, other, other issues like that. And it, you know, that was a big driver of some of the tensions leading up to the civil war. I mean, like the Connecticut law that I, that I mentioned, you know, a world in which some states are refusing to cooperate in the investigation of what another state considers to be murder, uh, refusing to extradite people, refusing to honor uh, legal process or legal judgments from those other states, you know, that's kind of a pretty, pretty wild step outside of how things have worked in the United States legally for a really long time. And it's easy to imagine this, you know, sort of creating a, a atmosphere of sort of tit for tat retaliation between states that if, if Connecticut says they're not going to extradite this person to Mississippi on what Mississippi considers to be this like capital murder charge, you know, how does Mississippi respond to that? What do they do in retaliation to Connecticut for that? And, and so it really sort of strikes at some of the, the core legal customs that have held the United States together for, for 200 years. Um, is that a bad thing? I don't know. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, I think that's, that's sort of a, a, uh, a, a an open question as to like, you know, even if you agree that the United States should be abolished, it's like in what, in what way and in what fashion and, and who, who, who's running the game? Because like, right now it seems like if, if the United States were to fall in a civil war, it'd be the, you know, reactionaries that had, had the upper hand in a lot of, in a lot of respects. And so does that just create like, uh, a, you know, plurality of, of hyper reactionary hyper nationalist like theocracies across you know the land that was once the United States I don't know that's kind of I'll leave that for the the, the speculative fiction writers and the political theoreticians you know it's pretty clear that you know the vast majority of people or the majority of folks in the United States are in favor of of abortion rights and abortion access. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's, I think there's different lines that can be drawn around exactly when and to what extent, but all of the numbers show that in, you know, at least some circumstances, people should have a right to get an elective abortion. Um, and this is something that's been pushed by you know, a very narrow, but very, uh, intense and active and effective political movement, uh, from the far right for, you know, 50 years now, uh, that is finally, you know, I think they've been reaping some benefits, uh, for a couple decades, but I mean, they're finally like on the verge of, you know, what they consider to be a total victory. And, you know, they've done this. You know, most recently, I think a lot of the attention has been on their sort of legislative and judicial efforts, but it's been, it's been a, a true diversity of tactics on their part that everything from assassination and kidnapping and bombing campaigns 
and street protests and civil disobedience um, up to the, you know, stacking courts with their nominees and, you know, single issue uh, voters and electing people based solely on their stance on abortion. And so it's really it's really run the gamut. And somehow they've, you know, since the since the 90s, they've managed to rehabilitate their image so that, yeah, I think a lot of people have sort of forgotten that, like, oh, these are the same people that, like, not that long ago were just murdering doctors um, because they were, you know, allegedly, quote unquote, pro-life. So I guess this brings up the question, what would the repressive apparatus to go after and arrest people look like and how would that be implemented? What agencies would be carrying out these arrests? Would they have to create like a new sort of like interstate agency to arrest people for essentially reproductive crimes or this would be like state police, regular police? I think it would be the same, the same police agencies that we already see. Um, and so, you know, if you get, if you get an abortion in Lubbock County, Texas, it's going to be, you know, the Lubbock County Sheriff's Office that's investigating you and the Lubbock County District Attorney's Office that's prosecuting you and, you know, the district court in Lubbock County that, that convicts and sentences you. And then you'll go to the regular, you know, Texas Department of Criminal Justice prison that incarcerates you. Um, I think that there are, you know, again, looking at sort of how this creates tensions uh, within and between different geopolitical entities, you know, you can imagine that, like, even in a state like Texas or a state like Mississippi, um, maybe the prosecutor in Jackson, in, you know, Jackson, Mississippi says that, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a leftist. I'm, you know, I'm not going to prosecute abortion cases or, you know, the district attorney in in Houston says that, you know, we're not going to prosecute abortion cases here because, you know, my constituency is all Democrats. And so I don't want to offend them. Um, but is, you know, will the, will the state government uh, task, you know, part of their attorney general's office or, uh, part of their state police with, with investigating and prosecuting these crimes in place of, of local police that are unwilling to do it. I think that's, you know, again, another, another one of these open questions that, you know, I don't know that the, that even, even the political right has, has an answer for yet. I think that they're sort of, taking this a little bit one step at a time that they've been fighting 50 years to overturn Roe versus Wade. And once they've got that under their belt, they're going to be like, well, what's, what can we do? What can we do next? You know, how can we, how can we make this, uh, this victory go as far as possible, both, both in terms of, of restricting abortion, criminalizing abortion, punishing people for, you know, seeking and obtaining and providing abortions uh, but also in terms of like what what else on our sort of agenda list can we can we use this to attack and undermine? Yeah, I think the next uh, feasible step, like you said, would be more criminalization, but also gay marriage, you know, and they've prepped the groundwork for that so hardcore with all this talk about groomers and, 
you know, going after Disney. Um, and so it's hard to, you know, hard to shake a stick at, you know, what's, what's the most terrifying about this, um, this looming reality that we're facing. But, you know, one, one piece of it is that, you know, the rationale that Justice Alito uses in this, uh, draft opinion for overturning Roe versus Wade is that, you know, he says that the Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion. And so this is something that should be left to the states. And, and it's like, well, the Constitution doesn't say anything about a lot of things that we sort of take for granted as like rights that we have. And the, the right to abortion is very much tied up into the, the right to privacy. Uh, the, the Constitution doesn't say anything about a right to privacy. This is something that, you know, the Supreme Court and judges have sort of read into the Constitution and sort of like inferred. But if, if that's something that this new, you know, super right wing majority on the Supreme Court is no longer willing to do and is willing to sort of roll back all the precedents that are, you know, based on a right to privacy, you know, that includes, <clears throat> you know, the right to, uh, you know, consensual sodomy, you know, any sort of like basically non-procreative sex. Uh, you know, that was that decision, Lawrence versus Texas, was decided under uh, the right to privacy, um, the right to watch, you know, pornography in your home, uh, right to privacy issue. Um, gay marriage was not specifically a right to privacy issue. It was a, it was a, uh, due process issue. But again, constitution doesn't say anything about marriage. It doesn't, certainly doesn't say anything about gay marriage. And so, you know, to what extent are they using this to, you know, set the stage for, you know, all sorts of other things that they're looking to, to repeal and to recriminalize. And, you know, I also think it's, it's notable, like, constitutional protections around, uh, forced sterilization, um, are kind of a little bit weak, but, you know, a, a government and a, and a judicial branch that can say that you don't have any right to terminate a pregnancy, that you, like, have to carry a, a pregnancy to term, uh, is also in a very good position to say that, like, you don't have any right to get pregnant and the, you know, forced sterilization, um, suddenly, be you know, becomes on the table in a way that, like, uh, that, you know, it just hasn't been in recent history. And again, you know, looking at the history of, like, who gets targeted for sterilization, you know, indigenous communities, black communities, you know, poor communities, people with mental health issues, people with criminal records, people with disabilities. These are, you know, the communities that get targeted for, for the sort of like, uh, eugenicist policies. So I think that, you know, the, the world in which the court doesn't think that there's any, uh, any constitutional basis for making a private medical decision about what to do with your body is, you know, I think a frightening future for, you know, everybody, regardless of, you know, your particular 
opinion about abortion or your particular need to ever get an abortion. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a harbinger of, of some serious, uh, doom ahead. So from a legal perspective, <laughs> are there, are there legal mechanizations in which it would make sense for people to direct their energy towards in, in terms of protest, dissent? This is clearly a legal problem, but I actually don't think that there's like a legal solution to it. Um, you know, I think that the legal establishment sort of suffers a lot from its own mythology and its own delusions around its like non-political nature. And, you know, people talk about like, oh, this is going to expose the, or this is going to make the Supreme Court look like just another political body or something. And it's like, in, in what, in what stupid universe do you live in where the Supreme Court is not just a political body? Um, you know, I know that there's this, this legal mythology that somehow the law is above politics and the Supreme Court is above politics or something. Um, but I think regular people that aren't sort of indoctrinated into that nonsense, uh, can easily see through that. And, you know, critical legal studies, critical race theory, you know, these have all been demonstrating the the inherently political and ideological nature of law and justice and judicial process for you know as long as as long as Roe versus Wade has been around so so yeah I don't think that there's like a legal solution uh, to this problem I think it's a problem of um, you know, political power in, in the broadest sense, not in terms of partisan politics necessarily, but like where, where is power built in society? Um, and so, you know, I think we need to be talking about like movements and communities and people and organizing power on those levels. Um, because that's, I mean, that's what's gonna, that's what's gonna bring us to liberation, not, um, not a legal strategy, obviously. And so, you know, where I think, I mean, I think the pro-choice movement has, has suffered from a number of, of missteps over the years. I think, um, you know, over-reliance on the Democratic Party that has been extremely complicit in the, uh, you know, stigma against abortion, you know, uh, Joe Biden was like a longtime supporter of the Hyde Amendment that prohibits, uh, any federal funding going towards abortion or abortion care. Um, you know, Tim Kaine, who is Hillary Clinton's running mate, also a longtime supporter of the Hyde Amendment. Um, so these are people that are like high up and like, literally leading the democratic party that like made their entire careers out of like restricting abortion access and, and creating stigma around abortion. And so they can say all they want now about like protecting the right to choose, but it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's hypocritical and it's hollow and it's, it's political, it's political pandering basically. Um, well, you know, what some friends of mine say is that, you know, politicians follow movements, not the other way around. Um, and so I think another, another piece is that 
it's hard to find, you know, targets and symbols for a protest or direct action movement um, on this issue because it's, you know, if you're protesting police violence, you go to the police substation or the police union headquarters or, you know, the the contractor that's, you know, selling police gear or, you know, the police cars or, you know, there's, there's a lot of these, like, um, you know, ready-made uh, symbols and locations. And there, there, there really isn't that for the, uh, this sort of right-wing movement. Um, a lot of, because a lot of the right-wing movement is, is, you know, organized through, uh, through churches and it's, you know, say what you want about it. It's not really that socially acceptable to be, uh, targeting churches for, for protest and, and direct action and obstruction and civil disobedience and things like that. Um, and so I think it, I think it sort of creates a, um, bit of a conundrum for like how, how, how you, how you organize and direct, direct these movements. But, um, there was an article in the nation a couple, couple months ago, sort of discussing the difference between the pro-choice movement here in the United States that in, in many ways feels like it's failing and pro-choice movements in uh, a number of Latin American countries that seem to be winning major victories recently. And, um, one of the arguments that it made is that, you know, in a lot of these Latin American countries like Mexico, the, the feminist and the pro-choice movements, you know, were always based in sort of grassroots street politics and hadn't gotten caught up in like these institutions like not big nonprofits and lobby organizations and political parties. And that, you know, that's where, you know, that's where their power came from and that's where U.S., you know, pro-choice, uh, movements have, have faltered. So, you know, I think, I think there's a lot that can be, uh, gleaned and learned from the movement against police violence after George Floyd's murder in 2020. You know, I think standard sort of movement protest uh, lessons 101 is, you know, creating, creating a crisis, creating a political crisis. And, you know, the protests after George Floyd's murder, uh, did that in a really, really dramatic and spectacular way. And I think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of lessons that people can take to heart from that. In what ways do you think that this will impact, you know, a lot of the stuff that the Republicans are doing, um, beyond just attacking abortion access. So for instance, like all of the anti LGBTQ bills, especially attacking, you know, trans youth and so on. I think it's definitely going to create momentum, uh, for, for the far right. Um, the issue of, you know, abortion access and healthcare for trans people. I mean, these are, you know, very deeply, linked issues that, that center around, um, bodily autonomy and, you know, bodily autonomy for, for marginalized and oppressed communities in particular. Um, and, you know, suffice it to say that like 
sort of going back to what I said, if there's no constitutional basis for protecting somebody's right to make a private medical decision about their body uh, in regards to abortion, then there's no constitutional basis uh, for protecting somebody's right to make a private medical decision about their body in regards to, you know, gender identity and gender expression either. Um, so I think that the, the, the pro-choice movement, the abortion rights movement has, uh, made some, made some good steps in terms of, um, including a, you know, queer and trans analysis. Um, but I think that there's also still a long way to go. There's still a lot of sort of, you know, second wave, radical, you know, so-called radical feminists with a, you know, really essentialist view of gender, um, that, you know, is really, you know, trans exclusionary and transphobic. Um, and so I think that there's, there's definitely a lot of room, uh, to develop that further because, you know, these, these two issues really like, um, they really live or die together in a lot of ways. Well, I guess the last question is just sort of, we've already sort of touched on a little bit, but I mean, your thoughts on how the Trump base will respond to this, uh, both, you know, far right, neo-fascist groups, also just like regular Trump supporters. You know, we already talked about how this is sort of energizing the base. Uh, today we saw Proud Boys out at a demonstration at the University of North Texas. Uh, I'm sure as things go on, if the demonstrations do go on, that we'll see more and more far right groups sort of mobilize against those, just like with the George Floyd demonstrations. Yeah, I'm just curious, any other thoughts you have? I mean, especially just, you know, on the other side too, because I think we're also seeing a whole new generation of youth, uh, probably come into the streets for the first time. They maybe saw the George Floyd uprising take place two years ago, and now they're seeing this. In places where there does remain abortion access, uh, it's easy to imagine that, you know, right-wingers will escalate their, their attacks in, in various ways on, uh, people that are trying to protect that access and provide that access. Um, I think that, you know, you mentioned the, the crossover between the anti-choice movement, the anti-abortion movement and, and white nationalist movements. I think that we will continue to see uh, more of that crossover, more of that, that interplay. Um, you know, the white nationalist movement definitely sees anti-abortion activism and organizing as, as, you know, again, pardon the pun, but fertile recruiting ground, uh, for, uh, for, you know, their, their sort of, fascist causes because there's there's a lot of ideological overlap uh between these between these movements you know on the on on the left you know i think i think it is going to to energize and radicalize people but i also think it's going to create you know a lot of hardship and a lot of um you know trauma and a lot of you know really negative impacts on people too. Um, and, you know, I think that there, there's a, there's a steep learning curve about how to 
you know, scale up our efforts at providing reproductive health care for people in a manner that has to be clandestine and underground because it's being, you know, actively hunted and actively targeted by, um, you know, the full weight of the, the state's repressive apparatus. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's resource intensive work. And, you know, if there, if there's any, any silver lining in, you know, this, this decision getting leaked when it did, it's that it, you know, I think it's serving as a bit of a wake up call for people that had maybe been clinging to some hope that things might be, yeah, might turn out differently. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we can, people can use that, um, that sort of advance notice, that warning shot, so to speak, to, uh, be a bit better prepared for when, uh, when the final decision does come down. Because, I mean, people, people that have been following this and people that have been like organizing around this and, and paying close attention, you know, have been saying basically since Amy Coney Barrett got confirmed to the Supreme Court that like, the days of Roe versus Wade are numbered. And if it, you know, if it didn't get overturned in this way at this time, it was going to be in this other way at this other time in the not too distant future. And so we're sort of, we're sort of coming up against, uh, coming up against the deadline, um, on that. And, you know, it's, it's horrible and it's tragic and it's, it's, we're going to see, you know, people, people suffering and dying and going to prison and unnecessarily because of it. Um, but I'm hoping we'll also see, you know, new networks of resistance and new, uh, infrastructure for, you know, caring for each other in a way that's, you know, illegal and secretive, um, that, you know, we haven't necessarily had to do before but now we do just just for folks that like you said you know may maybe not have maybe hope is the wrong word but sort of had the idea that, that at least the democrats are there to kind of provide this sort of like basic defense against you know attacks on roe v wade and you know like you said like what we're seeing is that they're not not only not able to do that but they're not even willing to do that and and also too, they're so terrified of the working class getting out of control that they are completely opposed to mobilizing on people. And whereas the far right really feeds off of you know extra legal violence and like calls upon it and invites it and encourages it, the Democrats are just terrified of just everyday people going buck wild and getting organized. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Demo- the Democrats are focused on, on trying to manage every single thing, um, and keep, keep everything contained. And whereas, you know, you know, we're talking about the Supreme Court, you know, Justice Thomas's wife is, you know, being revealed to have like, been texting the, the White House begging the president to, you know, basically disregard an election and overturn an election. And like, and this is, this is the high profile wife of, you know, one of the people that's, you know, voting to like cast aside any, any, uh, semblance of bodily autonomy. And so I think it really, 
it really just shows like where where their heads are at in terms of like their vision of authoritarianism and control and oppression um for everybody and you know regard you know i think the the abortion issue is you know the one that they've mobilized around but i think you know like we've talked about several times it just it trickles out into all of these other um other broader issues and you know um you know the i think you know the 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 core of the anti-abortion movement you know they're not content to ban abortion you know they're not going to be content until you know they've banned sodomy banned contraception banned pornography um you know anything other than like the most strict and repressive and like you know constrained version of of sex sex and sexuality that you can imagine
Hi, I'm Natasha Leonard. I'm a columnist at The Intercept, and I teach critical journalism at The New School in New York. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us once again. We're going to be talking sort of loosely based on an article that you posted on The Intercept, The End of Row, Saving Abortion Rights Means Taking Them Into Our Own Hands. Let's start off just what are your thoughts on last night? So we saw thousands of people take to the streets across the U.S. What are you thinking right now? <sighs> yeah, I mean, obviously it's, uh, you know, I think it would have been really disturbing had the, uh, you know, SCOTUS opinion leaked and then there not have been thousands of people uh, taking to the streets, particularly outside um, courthouses nationwide. Um, pretty much in every state. So I think it would have been a real um, worrying absence had that not happened at the same time, you know, uh, and we've seen this at at various kind of uh, stark or striking political moments. Uh, You know, there's the the kind of broader shock um, for, you know, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who perhaps weren't paying close attention to the trajectory of this kind of fascist creep of the kind of long and well-established victories of the Christian right for whom, you know, the end of Roe was this like earthquake, didn't expect it to happen, um, hadn't been paying attention to the ways in which we've been, uh, you know, much of the country is already living in a, a post-Roe world without access to abortion. Um, so, you know, in that, that moment of shock that, um, you know, even those, of us who've been well expecting that could nonetheless feel there's this kind of rush to, to a demonstration, to a protest. Um, it's a good impulse. It's good when people kind of come together, but I, you know, I think we've seen too many times what it can look like when people feel that it's an end in itself, you know, like we stood up and had, uh, things and joined and then marched around a little bit in predictable, uh, parade routes through certain cities and went home. Um, and you know, for, for an issue like abortion access and, um, resisting, uh, you know, the, com- the ways in which these kind of fascistic moves against bodily o- autonomy are only going to go further and further. There's of course a limit to turning up to a kind of benign, uh, quite placid protest. Uh, you know, in certain cities there were clashes with police, um, you know, uh, I'm thinking of Los Angeles in particular. New York was was particularly placid. Um, and, you know, I don't want to sound judgmental, um, but obviously uh, the kind of organizing and collectivity and pressure creation that is necessary at this moment uh, is certainly far beyond uh, anything we saw last night. Um, and I'm, you know, somewhat... Uh, heartened by the fact that what what I've heard from a number of people today and what I've seen on social media a lot today is people kind of trying to think about how to build upon existing abortion access, abortion fund networks, um, abortion pill uh, access, and how those of us in abortion-protected states can assist with that. And that kind of thing, I think, is uh, a lot more useful uh, than just the kind of short-lived, there was shock today, let's go stand outside an obvious, uh, you know, state 
Capitol building or courthouse. There's some graffiti that's sort of gone around virally on social media where it's, it says like, liberals, you said you would riot if Roe v. Wade was overturned, you know, pay up or something like that. I'm just curious yeah. if, you can, if you can comment just on that sentiment from a lot of, I, I guess, self-described liberals and progressives that basically like there would be a line that would, that could be crossed in which, you know, they would be more disruptive. Did we see that? Did we not see that? Oh, yeah. Well, look, of course, we didn't see that last night. Um, You know, last night was not uh, a night of uprising. Uh, It was a night of, I think, you know, togetherness and and, uh, demonstration, but certainly not um, anything truly rebellious uh, for the most part. And I would have been surprised had it been. Um, Yes, of course, uh, you know, this wouldn't be the first time where, you know, liberals have historically proclaimed that there is a red line somewhere and that of course they see themselves as the kind of subject that when the time comes would of course rise up um you know notably uh very i wouldn't imagine that very many of the people who make those kind of proclamations in a futural sense of it's never quite arrived also joined in the streets uh in the 2020 uprisings i don't remember um seeing a lot of uh, liberals rioting then. So that's just why it's a kind of, yeah, it's a facetious, facetious, uh, but I think apt dig, um, you know, liberals, can we riot now? Uh, and it was the same way when, when Trump was elected, there was a, you know, we'll get in the streets and we'll stay in the streets and this cannot stand. And there was some, you know, ferocious and potent protest during that time. Um, nothing again compared to, uh, the black proletarian red led 2020 uprisings. But, you know, after November 2016, there were lots of big protests and people, you know, shouted fuck Donald Trump like they were shouting fuck Eric Adams, which you love to hear it um, in New York last night. But it didn't signal to me a kind of touch point moment of, you know, there's no going back. Um you know, everyone's taken to the streets now. We're in a moment of uprising. Like, I'm not seeing that. And I would be, um, you know, wishful thinking to say that. I think what's for those of us who are keen to see a kind of radical, at, at most points, keen to see uh, radical shifts and embraces of that kind of thing, um, you know, it's useful, I think, when people are pointing to the mass feminist movements for abortion uh, in Latin America, you know, and there was even people saying we're green, which we saw in a lot of the protests, uh, was supposed to be a kind of gesture to that. Um, but I think it would also be unrealistic to suddenly pretend we have that kind of mass of, um, radical feminist protest willing to take to the streets, stay in the streets in militant ways at this moment. Like that would be, uh, kind of foolish of us. Um, but you know, uh, that doesn't mean I don't think we're going to see some really important collective action taken and, you know, some perhaps unexpected galvanizing towards a more, uh, militant standing or at least acceptance of militant action, um, from, you know, previously more kind of centrist liberals, but, you know, I'm not making any grand predictions in that direction because it's, that would be unempirical. 
Biden's marching orders to the rank and file is just, you know, go out and vote and give us money and hope for the best, which, of course, is like you already have the presidency. You have both houses of Congress. You know, what have you done? You know, you haven't done anything. You touch about this in your article as well. Oh, yeah. I know I describe them as um, the, the Democratic Party as feckless. And, um, you know, given the refusal to break the filibuster, the only way in which, um, you know, a national abortion protection law could ever be put on the books within this congressional term, um, you know, they, the Democrats are kind of approaching holding as much blame as the violent Christian right who have had um, an abortion ban as a kind of wish, which they have fulfilled um, at ever kind of starker rates. Uh, you know, I, I think no Democrat can be forgiven for this. And sure, we can point to uh, Bernie and others on the left flank who have tried to uh, urge that the filibuster be broken and that uh, nationwide abortion protections and voting rights acts um, get codified. Uh, you know, and if we don't see this happen before November uh, and in the, you know, very real possibility that Republicans, you know, sweep and take back Congress. Um, and if they do so in significant enough numbers, uh, you know, we shouldn't think for a second that they're not going to try and pass a nationwide federal abortion ban, you know, claims about states' rights be damned. Like, that's the goal. Um, that's the right-wing goal. And um, to watch Democrats be so... Feckless um, is, of course, wildly infuriating and I think should infuriate everyone. I mean, here's the like rock and the hard place, though, right? Like uh, in the in the fear that there would be a Republican sweep in November to the extent that they would then have the numbers in Congress to pass a nationwide abortion ban. People will nonetheless they them having done absolute fuck all. Um, you know, people will turn out, uh, with kind of fear-based votes to keep the Democrats as much in, uh, power as they can. So it's completely undeserved, but it's just once again another, uh, kind of set of conditions wherein people vote against the greatest evil to a really quite significant evil. Um, and I understand that. Like, we don't want a nationwide abortion ban, but that's why at this particular moment, like, you know, I'm all for making Democrats' lives hell uh, to push them to end the filibuster and uh, pass, uh, you know, nationwide abortion protection laws. Sure. But, uh, you know, I would have no faith in that. We have no reason to have faith in any of these politicians um, who claim to care about our bodily autonomy. Um, so we have to be organizing differently if we actually care about people getting abortions who need them. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up, you know, people voting in fear. Um, you know, other folks have chimed in on social media about will the Republican base turn out in mass numbers to vote for Republicans basically as a thank you? Like, I guess which base will be more, more motivated? One out of joy that something they fought for so long is being passed and the other one out of fear that like you said there's an article in the washington post actually that talks about um you know their plans for a nationwide ban which 
I think is centered around like after eight weeks or something like that. Yeah, which would be, you know, just just an abortion ban in this entire yeah. continent sized country. Um so uh, you know, I it's hard to know which uh you know, whether fear motivated votes or you know, <laughs> fashoid pandered base motivated votes will uh, you know, bring more uh will kind of win over in November. I'm not a pollster. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, there's no doubt that, uh, Republicans from their think tanks downwards have been far better organized, uh, at this point for decades. Um, and that is, you know, evidently something that democratic establishment has no interest in learning from, um, but we should be acutely aware of it and know the kind of yeah, the kind of power of the enemy is not insignificant. As a lot of people sort of get disenchanted with the democratic establishment, what do you think people should be doing to kind of like fill that void to basically say like there is actually something we can do? There's a lot to do. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, this particularly around the issue of, um, you know, abortion rights, I think uh, you know, people who are like, you know, clearly when the Democrats aren't going to save us. Um, and if this is the first moment people are realizing this, you know, there's a, like, I feel there's a desire to be like, Oh, welcome on, welcome aboard. You just got here, but that's not helpful. Obviously, like people finding dis, uh, disaffection with, um, you know, mainstream liberalism. Those are people that will, that make potential allies and co-conspirators uh in the right occasions so the important thing is not uh i think people who are who might be in that uh situation i'm not sure they're going to be listening to us right now but if you maybe know people uh i think the the, what's important is that you know the kind of go-to move of well why don't we give money to planned parenthood uh you know that's not something that should be embraced right now it's notable that planned parenthood has quietly stopped providing abortions in georgia and alabama already um based on uh local legis- legislation that's passed there i mean that's not accept- acceptable these are the front lines but there are groups who have been organizing on the front lines paying people's bail funds uh ensuring that uh you know abortion fund money is apportioned where it needs to be. Um, and I think these are the groups that we need to be following. We don't need to kind of reinvent the wheel here. There are networks because there are, you know, dozens of states in this country where abortion access is already highly limited, if not non-existent. Of course, there are, um, groups on the front lines in these states who have been working with and on behalf of pregnant people, women and pregnant people. Um, all this time for, for the many years that this attack has been, uh, you know, uh, raged against, uh, our bodily autonomy. And, uh, you know, for example, the horrifying case that, that made a lot of headlines, uh, rightly so, uh, I believe it was last month in Texas when a young woman called Lizelle Herrera was arrested and originally charged with murder, uh, in connection to her self-induced abortion. And this was just a kind of, you know, overzealous 
uh, sheriff's office, essentially, who were like, we'll charge her with murder. Turns out right now in Texas, there is not a murder statute uh, with which you can charge the pregnant person for an a self-induced abortion. Um, so the, the charge couldn't stick because there's no such law. Um, but again, we're seeing these laws changing at, at great speed. So who's to say that that's not the next step and indeed very feasible uh, in a fully post-row world. But notably, it wasn't Pan- Planned Parenthood who were paying Lizelle Herrera's bond. It was local groups um, and existing efforts um, who are making abortion access a reality in Texas. And those sort of abortion funds that those of us who are living far away, who are in uh, currently uh, abortion supportive states uh, need to be focusing our effort. I think the group that uh, was taking kind of the front lines for Herrera were called Frontera Fund in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, so I think we should be keeping keeping our eye on who's on the front lines and f- following and being co-conspirators in that sense, rather than those of us in New York and those of us, you know, and maybe those of us who have not been particularly involved in abortion activism and those who maybe weren't involved in any sort of radical activism, but this will be a turning point, um, should be looking to not trying to uh, pretend that we, you know, not centering ourselves, not presuming that that we know how to organize around this. If we haven't been doing that, people have. In terms of, of street protests, some people were talking about the, the so-called Muslim ban uh, that happened right when Trump came into office and everybody like went out and flooded the airports. I think what's a little different with this is that it's sort of a question of like, where do you kind of like direct that energy? Cause I mean, obviously there's the Supreme court, but I mean, that's just a building. I mean, yeah. Buildings that are also supporting abortion, you know, like certain courts that are like always standing by abortion. So no, it's tricky. And it's, and I think this is a problem in uh, moments of outrage or moments of rage uh often where it's not clear where to direct what would be kind of street energies which i think are always important like it's not um an accident that a lot of the advice of feminists in the uh pro-abortion protests in latin america were like well we stayed in the streets we stayed in the streets and if you have great great numbers and you are shutting the flows of a city down it's sort of irrelevant uh what you're which building you're specifically standing at if it's a question of shutting down infrastructures uh shutting down the ability to for a given metropolis or area to function as normal i mean this we know but we're not talking about those kind of active radical numbers at this point you know the airport protests around the muslim ban made absolute sense as you say because you know the airport was the site of violence right the airport was where a lot of these you know some some people so much capital is allowed to flow and other people are you know held back restricted arrested or moved along against their will so these are those kind of important intersection points um which it's not always so obvious with something yeah like an abortion ban um i think Obviously, those who are on the ground in certain areas being able to create protective barriers in the streets when people are trying to get abortions, if they're being harassed, and this is not a new tactic, remains crucial. Um, I think for those who, you know, I don't think it's 
worthless to not be um, harassing senators as people have been, like Manchin and Cinema, who are holding up the filibuster. They're not the only problem here. I mean, the entire Democratic leadership is the problem, but you know they are in power for um, you know some more months, and I think deserve. You know, I'm not I'm not talking about polite protests. I'm talking about um, you know making making it more uncomfortable for them to be so feckless than to act at all. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, in places like New York, when it comes to street protests, if it's, um, if it, we're not talking about vast numbers, it's not clear what the, what the kind of shutting down would look like. Which kind of processes are we trying to shut down in terms of assisting people who can't get abortions to get abortions? So maybe in certain cities, um, if we're not talking about huge mass uprisings level ongoing shut it all down protests and to be honest I don't think we are then maybe yeah like the march the rally the protest is not the tactic for this particular issue they're not just coming for reproductive freedom they're coming for everything that they can go after that kind of connects to that you know gay marriage everything oh right yeah exactly and I mean it's I think one crucial thing uh, when we're talking about the yeah the entirety of the fascistic right wing agenda is um you know there's a lot of there's a lot of talk now specifically based on um the leaked Scotus opinion by Scalia um because he made a point of referencing uh Lawrence versus Texas which uh invalid invalidated anti sodomy laws uh of course. Uh, Obergefell and Hodges, which legalized same-sex marriage, um, they were specifically noted by the, by Justice Scalia, and he said none of these rights has any claim to being deeply rooted in history. And uh, as he applied that same logic to um, Roe, uh, but you know what that makes unambiguously clear is what he means by any rights that can function at all, uh, any rights with deep rooting in history are only the rights, you know, as relates to at the birth of this racist nation. So we're talking about rights that protect property, patriarchy, whiteness. Um, of course, anything but that is under attack and coming under attack. But but crucially, I want to emphasize that already under the most violent attack are the lives of trans people and trans youth in particular. Um, you know, if people are, are worried about the futural attacks on same-sex marriage, that's valid. Um, but to pretend that this isn't already happening at a most extraordinary speed and degree to trans kids, uh, would be to, you know, really, really fail. Um, and it would be disgraceful. And I think this needs a focus too. And they come together, right? These are not separate fights. Um, these are fights against, uh, you know, the building of a agenda which is succeeding and succeeding in terms of protecting white standing and patriarchy, um, and total control of our bodies and total, uh, decimation of bodily autonomy. Uh, forced birth to me is as violent as, you know, a forced puberty into a gender, uh, that you don't want to live in. Um, and I think if we don't see these violences together, 
um, that would be very foolish because certainly the far right sees them together. Um, and that's why it's no accident that all these anti-abortion laws, state anti-abortion laws, state attacks on trans lives and state attacks on, uh, you know, educating people around this nation's racist history, uh, have all come together. They're all coming together and they're all coming from, you know, the same think tanks like Heritage Foundation that write this model legislation. So they are on a kind of unified attack. And if we don't see these things as interconnected, and if we throw trans kids under the, under the bus, well, like, shame on us. You're listening to It's Going Down, part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Twitter at IGD underscore news. If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. In the United States, it's like, you know, two-thirds of the population supports abortion access and abortion rights. It's like, this isn't something that's like an, an, a not a popular position, you know? Right, no, and same with, you know, uh, universal healthcare and student debt cancellation. Like, we, this is the nature of minority rule, which is what we what we have um and which is also why you know uh i think we we can fairly have very little patience to you know liberals rending at their clothes saying oh but our great democracy our democracy the social contract is broken like what social contract like you know the right calls upon this kind of mythical u.s history um you know, that they they want this kind of like ultra nationalistic sets of rebirth uh, as their ideology. But this liberal sense of like what what became of this great, great democracy and pointing to kind of notions of like rights that have never really been enabled to exist. And, um, you know, the democracy that they imagine somehow existed but never has um, makes you kind of acutely aware that they don't seem to know what the the stakes are right now and, and what country they have been living in. Um, so it's easy to roll our eyes and be frustrated as we should. Um, I don't think, um, you know, we need to have endless patience, but you know, this might be a moment of reckoning, uh, for that kind of specific demographic of people. Um, will it necessarily be? I don't know. Like if you look on Twitter, there's still a lot of, uh, you know, vote and it's Susan Sarandon's fault for some reason. Um, something, something, 2016, something. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I, if I sound cynical, that's, um, I guess cause I am, but I don't think that means we shouldn't be, you know, making moves, being together, strategizing, um, and thinking about what we can, what we can immediately do. Um, yeah, I'm just not expecting a kind of huge groundswell of um, liberals joining the ranks. Well, anything else you want to talk about? Again, we want to encourage people to read your article on The Intercept. Um, I just, yeah, I mean, uh, I think you mentioned this uh, when you were uh, speaking to your uh, previous guest who knows more about law than I do. But I do think it's important to keep an eye on the ways in which uh, once low, once row is completely undone, there are going to be these, this kind of un, 
unprecedented interstate, interjurisdictional conflicts between, you know, what gets codified on a state level to protect abortion in one state or to criminalize and prosecute it in another. And there's going to be a lot of clashes in these and legal gray areas and chaos. And I think, you know, we should be looking for those openings and looking to take advantage where we can in this really difficult situation. Um, but yeah, no, I'm going to be continuing to write about this and uh, continuing to pay a lot of attention to attacks on trans youth and trans lives in general, as I think we all should be. And, and yeah, uh, I just think, uh, keep an eye on those in the front lines and, and figure out how those networks can be built rather than, uh, presuming we have to do it all from scratch. So yeah, it's a scary situation. Yeah, it's going to be a weird moment. And, you know, uh, in blue states, you've seen, you've already seen, um, that Connecticut, uh, the Connecticut State House, they passed a law specifically designed to protect abortion providers and, you know, aiders, uh, who will be, who would be, who could and would, um, offer their services to someone who had maybe kind of left a, uh, red state with an abortion ban to find refuge and access there. So, you know, blue states will be hopefully following Connecticut's lead and making these kind of state laws to protect. And then, as you say, uh, there will be you know, uh, Mississippi law trying to particularly, uh, prosecute that out of state person. So there will be a lot of interjurisdictional conflict and it's interesting and will be chaotic, which is sort of ironic because one of the like right wing lines has been that for decades now is that Roe makes, uh, national abortion law more chaotic and how it made it more chaotic. It's like you haven't seen chaos from what we're about to see, um, in terms of state court uh interstate court conflict um but you know sometimes those of us who aren't relying on the kind of hand of juridical power to save us find find spaces of solidarity in those those openings and those gaps and in the chaos and i think we're gonna have to awesome well anything else you want to say or uh if you want to encourage people to follow you online they would like to (laughs) it's just natasha leonard on twitter and it has two ends this has been the it's going down podcast check it's going down.org for daily updates columns action reports and news go to it's going down.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms igd your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life